Hello, and welcome to Academy Conversations Uncut, a podcast of rare Q&As with the world's foremost filmmakers, hosted by the Academy and released for the first time to the public, unedited. Today's panel was recorded in September 2019 at the Samuel Goldwyn Theater in Beverly Hills, California, discussing the movie Downton Abbey, the first theatrical spinoff of the hit television show about the owners and servants of a large English stately home during the early 20th century. We were joined by actors Elizabeth McGovern, Hugh Bonneville, Leslie Nickel, and Alan Leach, costume designer Anna Robbins, and producer Liz Truebridge. The panel was hosted by Rose Woods-Wilson. Here's Rose. Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome. Thank you for staying. I'm Rose Woods-Wilson. I'm with the Academy, and I'm really hoping I have enough cliches to get through the Q&A. <laughs> so I hope you'll help me welcome this wonderful group of filmmakers. We have Liz Truebridge, the producer. Anna Robbins, costume designer. And a lovely array from this fabulous cast. We've plucked some of the best. Please welcome actors Leslie Nickel, Alan Leach, Elizabeth McGovern, and Hugh Bonneville. Thank you all for being here. This is Thank you very much for having us. Thank you. Oh, we're so excited to have you. Um, I just have to tell you that I went to a press screening, obviously ahead of time, and I took a friend of mine who's British. So when we left, I thought, well, I'll give him the first word instead of me blathering. I said, so, you're British, what do you think? And he said, this totally makes up for how Game of Thrones ended. <laughs> so, hey. <laughs> so, so, I just wanted to thank you all for that. Thank you. I really that was the plan. Right? <laughs> okay. Well, I feel like we can't talk about this film without acknowledging its pedigree, which, of course, is six very successful seasons on British television and here in the U.S. on PBS. Um, uh, it felt like the last episode hadn't even aired and rumors were already flying around about this film. Did you all start those rumors? No. Uh <laughs> well, the rumors uh, sort of started from our executive producer, Gareth Neiman, in, in season five, and then really sort of gathered steam during oh. season six. So they started earlier even than I thought. Yeah, yeah. And, um, uh, the, the, and I, when he sort of first mentioned it, I think we all thought, good luck with that, because, <laughs> uh, you know, we're, it's like herding cats. And as I think either he, someone said, it's like herding blind cats, because we're actors. And... Right. Um, <laughs> Uh, it's really, that's a question for, for, for Liz to answer about how that uh, process went about. But, uh, yeah, so it's been a, it's been a while. And uh, uh, so three, it was three years between finishing the show and, and starting the movie. Well, Liz, what conversations did you have with Julian, Julian Fellows? And uh, when did you have them? Well, obviously, because we were, we were embarking on something that was really quite huge for us to do, um, it was clear we had to, well, if we were going to do a movie, it had to stand on its own. And it had to be, you know, obviously we had some key cast and most people don't embark on making a movie with 20 key characters plus <laughs> guest cast. Um, but once we start, and Julian came up with this idea, we knew we had to get the narrative to 
um, to, 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 to really pull all the characters together and all the storylines together. But of course, you know, when you've got so many casts, you have to have multiple storylines. And I think Julian is a master of weaving those storylines in and out. I really do. What, was the three-year gap just strictly trying to get everybody together? I know that the very good folk at Carnival who were doing all the deals said trying to get this cast together for this film made Brexit look like a walk in the park. <laughs> <laughs> Too true. <laughs> Um, Liz, how would you respond to anyone who might say this is just another episode? I take a very deep breath. Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> You'd make a fist. <laughs> Hold. Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, I would honestly say, look, I think there's a real argument that says trying to turn a television series that's been as successful as Downton was into a movie that delivers... Is, is the hardest thing because you've got so much baggage you've got to overcome. Of course, it's got its benefits because you have a, an audience. But we, as I said, we set out, we knew this had to stand on its own. And we've been incredibly gratified by the feedback from people who said they'd never seen this TV show, but they loved the film. So I think it does stand up on its own. Well, there you have it. Thank you. <clears throat> Um, this film has more than its share of pageantry. You've got lots of horses. You've got parades. You've got um, huge ballroom dance sequences and dinners and uh, all kinds of things that I imagine gave you a few headaches. What, what gave you the biggest headache and what are you the most proud of? Oh, for sure. We'd had some practice at doing big ball scenes, but the, the, the King's Troop, I mean, A, it was the first time they had ever taken part in any fiction. You know, they are the ceremonial wing for the, for the Queen, so we prayed nothing was going to happen on the few days that we had them with us. But we had to move a hundred horses, 80 people, and six gun carriages from... Uh, Woolwich in southeast London to a small village in the West Country in England. And um, the, the location department turned two huge fields into an army encampment complete with grooms and stables and tacking rooms and, and barracks and mess rooms. I mean, it was incredible. And those guys were so brilliant with those horses. I mean, wow, they were fantastic. And there was one time they were doing the... They, they did a circuit for the street scenes and one of the riders fell off. And we were thinking, oh... And then it just got back up and got on again and then carried on as if nothing had happened. I mean, it was extraordinary. One. Wow. Mm. That's amazing. Well, Anna, I think you um, maybe heard from the audience. You don't, need to tell, you don't need to hear from me how exquisite your costumes are. Thank you. Um, they, they, they're so beautiful, but they're also beautifully specific, I think, to each character, which is uh, quite an achievement. Do you want to tell us a little bit about your process and your prep? I mean, I, I guess that's the thing from having been on the series, is that I, 
I've, I've worked with the characters in my head and worked with the cast for a number of years already. So I had this really lovely shorthand. Um, you know, I could spot an Edith original across a shop within 10 seconds, which meant that I was kind of already up to speed um, when it came on to prepping the film and was then able to spend um, more time considering our new characters and sort of researching the the sort of new um, uh, characters that came in and the, and the real life depictions of the king and queen. Um, so yeah, it was, it was a kind of familiarity that was amazing, but it was also quite challenging because I used to have nine episodes, hundreds of costumes per character, for the upstairs to um, to tell to tell Sorry, a story. <laughs> you, to, <laughs> But to tell a story through through clothing over over nine episodes is um, almost easier than doing it with one film, where I had to be much more considered about what clothes I put on each character because it was a much more edited, considered version of the whole series. More concise. Do you um, source vintage clothing to actually put on your characters or do you source it for inspiration to do your own designs? Um, a bit of both. I think for our for our women, there's probably a 50-50 split. I'm always really keen to find authentic garments that I can use. Um, I think it really anchors it to the past and then my new designs um, have got to sort of come up to that standard and feel sort of believable as a whole. Um, evening wear tends to be sort of more prevalent and more intact, um, whereas day wear I perhaps design from scratch a bit more. And with our gents, um, it's sort of bespoke tailoring because you might find an original suit that's fantastic for cut and style, but it's not going to fit our tall, handsome gentleman here. Yeah, it's going to hit was, Port Hugh with the knees. There was <laughs> yeah, quite. There was something about the, the... Was it the Queen's dress you were telling us about earlier? Oh, yeah, so... Um, Queen Mary was an incredible character to costume design for and such a challenge to, to design for real life characters and there's a huge amount of reference out there to kind of work from. Um, and I had an idea of how I wanted her ball gown to be, um, having gathered just images of her in evening wear. Um, and I worked with Cosprop and John Bright, um, who had some clothing that belonged to Queen Mary for me to look at and see how um, her, her clothing was put together, the construction, the level of embellishment. <clears throat> um, and so we were sort of going through that process. And then he said, oh, hang on a second. I've, I've got some fabric that belonged to her that was also left. Um, and, and so he brought out this roll of, of um, silk silver lame that happened to perfectly marry up to this piece of um, silver lace that I'd found that I wanted to be the starting point for the design. And it was like this perfect marriage of fabric. So the, the skirt um, that, that Geraldine James wears as Queen Mary in the ball gown, um, in the ball scene, um, belonged to Queen Mary herself. <laughs> Only in England. Yeah. Right? Oh my God. <laughs> that is truly remarkable. Um, so, Leslie, hello, Prin Princess One Costume, we'll call you. <laughs> oh, no, I think I had two, didn't I? Three. Oh, Maybe sorry. Three. I'm so yeah. sorry. I'm but so let's sorry. not dwell on that. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think it's, it somehow tickles me that um, Napoleon, who shares a name with a pastry, that he's the one who said an army runs on its stomach. And I think that, you know, Downton runs on its stomach and everything that the general of the kitchen, Mrs. Patmore, provides. Um, I love that you are, at, you always are on the verge of hysterics and yet you really are completely in control of everything. Yeah, that's about you, right. 
Um, there's also this soft underbelly that you hide really well. You're very crusty, but when you're in your scenes with Daisy, played by Sophie McShera, you know, the, the maternal side comes out a little bit. Is that something that you and Julian uh, talked about to try to bring out, or is that something that sort of developed naturally? No, no, with we never discussed it at all. Um, what I gathered only recently that, that Mrs. Patmore, for instance, was not in his head originally going to be funny. Um, but what Julian did with everybody was he he sort of clocked what, what people's strengths were. And it was my utter good fortune that I got to play with Sophie McShearer because the minute I met that girl, <clears throat> I just fell in love with her and I loved working with her every minute of it. She's a great little actress and she's a brilliant um, person to be around and she's hilariously funny and he he could see that between us and so he started writing a double act but because I'm so we are very fond of each other she calls me telly mummy <laughs> <clears throat> and in a way we've we've grown up with the youngsters haven't we we've we've seen them grow up and we've gone with them so he that's why it went in that direction without any doubt he just saw that um between us and he he made it work for those characters and he did that with everybody I would say how many takes did you do to get the red jam on the underbutler? Two. And it Two? was so nerve-wracking. Uh, oh, my God. Because I did the first go at it, and you can't actually tell the jelly what to do. It's a bit... <laughs> and they're they going, there ain't many goes at this. We haven't got that many shirts. And I think after the first one, he said, could you possibly do it? So you go, I don't know how to do that. I can only hope that it'll go in the right place. <laughs> so it was really nerve-wracking, actually. But it worked in the end. Yeah. <laughs> Can you cook? Ah, well. <laughs> um, originally, I would have said no because that would have been the true answer. Well, it's still a true answer, but because I don't eat meat anymore, I'm taking vegan cookery classes in Studio City. Yeah. All right. Because <laughs> if I don't, I won't eat. Well, it gives Mrs. Patmore somewhere to go. I love that. All right, so Alan... I think we all love Tom so much. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> he's, got, uh, he's got such a great arc in this film. You know, he starts out once again, slightly mistrusted, a little bit misunderstood. But you stand firm in your, your socialism and you're not a monarchist and you don't waver from that. Um, and you're, if, if I thought you had a superpower, it would be that you're the fixer. You're the family fixer, I think. And you remind me of another famous Tom in the movies, and that would be Robert Duvall's Tom and the Godfather. Because you're sort of the outside. You're in the family, but you're kind of on the outside. But you're the guy that gets it all done. You, yes. How do you feel about that? I, I was delighted when I got the, the script. Uh, I was very surprised that Tom had so many elements. I mean, he became Dr. Phil to the royal family, which was nice. <laughs> um, but I, and all the different elements, and I was so happy to see that love story uh, begin to blossom because it's something that I felt that Tom really deserved at the end of season six. And uh, he's, for a long time, he's been on his own in that house. So, and what I also love is the fact that what Julian did so cleverly is he create, Tom's always been a victim of circumstance. Mm -hmm. he, he really didn't ask for this life. He fell in love with a girl who sadly passed away due to contract negotiations. And... Um, <laughs> And then, so he, um, but Julian took the braver choice to leave Tom there. And, uh, and, <laughs> but what I love is in Lucy, he's found someone who's a victim of circumstance too. And I love that idea. And I have to say that scene at the very end when they're dancing outside was never scripted. And it was 
completely the idea of that lady there, Liz Truebridge. Well done. I'm a romantic. Who created it, and our other uh, producer, Gareth Neem, said, it'll never make the movie. Uh, and it- Proves him wrong. <laughs> And it most certainly did, and I love it because I think it's a lovely, it's a lovely full stop for his story as well. Well, it is, and it, I mean, I was giving Julian full credit for that because I thought it was a brilliant metaphor. You're once again outside. You're outside of the family with your new love. But with dancing the same dance, which I actually love. He's dancing the same dance, so it is very metaphorical. The fact that so, he's doing it, but he's doing it away in his own way, just and that's all that woman's brilliant idea. See, yeah. that's. Team effort yet again. Well, well done. Um, do you uh, still take the underground around London and are you not recognised? I do. Uh, yeah, I would say a lot of us still do public... Well, I do public transport. Yeah, totally. Um, <laughs> and uh, you do get recognised. The, the most enjoyable thing is especially well, when the show used to be on, that someone would get on on a Monday morning after it had been on and turn <laughs> to you and go, Oh, hey, how are you? Uh, have you been? Good. Yeah, great. No, I, um, I don't know you. <laughs> <laughs> Like, do you watch the TV? And they go, ah, okay. And then they normally get off at the next stop because <laughs> they feel a bit awkward. Yeah. Oh. Well, Elizabeth, um, I think if uh, Tom is the fixer, I think Cora is the negotiator. I feel like she is, what would she be, like the cream cheese in the cucumber sandwich? I don't know. She's, she's just always there. She's always smoothing things over. She's, I feel like she knows the characters better than they know themselves. And I love that you are the only American in the cast playing the only American in the family. So did you, do you feel like you have sort of infused Cora with some uniquely American attributes? Well, I hope so. I think that's inevitable given the fact that I am American and I'm playing the part. Right. <laughs> it's hard to avoid. <laughs> I mean, I tried um, from the beginning to fight for my point of view as an American um, to say, but, you know, I would do things differently. I would think about things differently. I wouldn't. Um, and I think, I, I, and I did feel that um, the script reflected that, that often Cora was able to uh, be more flexible when it comes to the traditional line on issues. And, and I think that is the benefit of the culture she comes from. Mm -hmm. um, so let's see, you stumped me. I didn't, uh, <laughs> um, I want to talk a little bit about the two of you as a couple. I think you're our favorite couple, America's favorite couple. Um, did, did the three year gap affect uh, adversely any of the chemistry that you had built up when, when you came back to it? Well, look, we've been married on screen three times now. So uh, <laughs> we're kind of used You've to worked it. out the kinks. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think I speak for all of us that, uh, not just in, in our dynamic, but uh, re really putting on, uh, coming back on set was like putting on a familiar, uh, familiar sweater or a, or a comfortable robe that you knew. And so were the dynamics. Uh, between us all, um, and that's especially true of, of Cora and Robert, who, who you know, let's face it, aren't exactly driving the plot in this one. We're um, we're there just to, in, in the background as the benign, the benign uh, necessary but useless. <laughs> <laughs> yes, like an appendix. Mm. 
but um, but obviously, you know, we are we are the we're the. I think that's what's rather lovely about the the whole script is that Downton and the and Team Downton, if you like, is is in a good place. You know, there aren't internal strifes. Um, what's great is to see Team Downton against the world. In this case, against the royal family coming <laughs> in and pulling the rug out from under them. And how and I think that's uh, again a, a really smart piece of, of writing and, and uh, structure, a pretty serial structure that that it's really us against the world. And of course, it's the audience loves these characters and wants to support them and wants them to do well and come through it well. And uh, you know, the, the it's a you know that the pebble is is thrown into the into the pond in in the second beat of the of the story uh, of, of the sequence, and um, and it's the ripples that happen you know, thereafter. So we are, you know, we're all we're, we've all um, we're all in, in a good place, I think, generally mm -hmm. as characters, and uh, I think our marriage is, uh, I think. Yeah, I think we're in a good place, aren't we, darling? Well, just wait till Downton Abbey too. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I think you're far more useful in an appendix. I really, I would, I would challenge that. And and uh, and Hugh, you know, Lord Grantham, he's still the Lord of the Manor, and every problem is still his problem. You know, you you're surrounded by a swirl of of you know, you have, you have these amazing, very strong women in your orbit. You've got a very domineering mother, a loving wife, two daughters who couldn't be more different or less supportive of one another. You've got a, a chippy butler who's, you know, giving you back sass. It's sort of, sort of all these things are chipping away at you. Is there anything that you, uh, that wasn't on the page that you felt like you brought to Robert to help him sort of navigate all of this? Uh, I think I brought a, a, an immense sense of uh, being in retirement, really. That's... Um, <laughs> That uh, uh, well, if you think about it, you know, Mary's running the household. Even Violet says, you know, you're the next generation. I'm thinking, what? what, what hang on, what about? I'm still alive, right, you know. Right, I'm um, still here. I can hear but, uh, you. But uh, but but that but that sense of handing on was always there, uh, you know, particularly with Tom and Mary as characters towards the end of the TV show, and uh, that's that baton is still in the process of being passed on. But uh, um, that patriarchal figure, I mean, yes, it's, it's. I think it's delicious. It's a bit like Mr. Bennett in 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 Pride and Prejudice. You know that you know that there's this sort of whirlwind of, of women actually running things and driving, you know, driving, and he just would rather be in his study hiding from it all. Um, but the key character, let's not forget, is is the castle. And without getting too sort of philosophical and sentimental, it is a microcosm of the world. It will, as as as, as Mr. Carson says at the end, in a hundred years' time, it will still be here, um, and the next generation will have taken it on. And our entire uh, well, I was born, my character was born to the duty of preserving this place and passing it on as, as best as possible, uh, as in the same way we are on this planet to try and pass it on as, as best as possible. At the moment, we're not making a great job of it, let's face it. Um, and I think that, again, is something that the audience relates to. They identify with this sense of place, this, this iconic building in the middle of a landscape that has been there for uh, you know, generations and will be there for generations, and we're all passing through, and each one of us knows what it's like to be one of us, I think. And I think that's, a, again, a key element of the show. Indeed it is. Yeah, I, um, I snuck in to watch the beginning again today, and I, I was struck by, you know, the castle as a character, and it's so beautifully introduced. You know, it's like if, as Liz said, you've never seen the show, you didn't know anything, and you came in and sat down, it'd be like, oh, this is important. <laughs> like, this, this is where it all happens. This is where all the magic happens. Well, I asked Liz earlier, but I will ask all of you now, what are you most proud of in this film? 
I would say each and every member of not only the cast and crew that have managed to take a very small period drama that I, I believe when we started it, we all hoped it would do well. But the fact that we've taken that through six seasons and now to the film, it's, it's, it's such a sense of pride for all of us because we are a family and we are an ensemble in so many ways. And for me, it's just, it's the culmination of, of great friends, great family, great actors, great, great technicians, wonderful uh, artists. So that's what I'm most proud of. I think I would say um, as an actor to be allowed to be in something that has truly touched people and made them apparently this happy is kind of, it's why you joined in the first place, you know, really. And not everybody gets the chance to have one of these. So I'm extremely proud to be, to be part of that, for sure. I think I would, I would add to that, that the, the responses we've had, not only to the TV show, but particularly now to the movie, we've had so many responses already saying, it's like being back with an old friend. And, uh, you know, if you think back to when the TV show, for those who followed the TV show, it finished in 2015. The world was a very, very different place then, both in your country and ours. And there, yes, the show in itself, by its very nature, has a sort of rose-tinted glow about it. It is about a different age, but it's also about a different age that when we were watching it. And we are in a very peculiar state now, certainly in our country. I won't speak for yours, but we are in a very peculiar place in our country. And our sense of national identity is all over the place. We don't have a sense of national identity. We have families who are split down the middle. Um, <clears throat> this, uh, uh, the story, the tone, the flavour of Downton, you know, whether it's, its social structure is right or wrong, it knew its structure, it knew its identity. The people who live and work there know how they function, how they get through those, uh, their, their life in that house. And I think there is a great reassurance in that. And I think our timing, as it was when the TV show came out, is rather appropriate. People have said it's wonderful to escape into something that is reassuring for a couple of hours, and that's what our business is about. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Elizabeth, did you want to say anything? I think that I feel I, it's, it's very much in line with what Alan said, that the, the thing that makes this show ignite and, what, and the thing that makes it distinctive is the fact that we've all come together so seamlessly and created something satisfying as a group. And in some ways, I feel that the culture of the English showbiz, of the, the American show business, doesn't support this quite as much as the culture of England because of the fact that, you know, we're very much influenced by the star system and um, actors working quite legitimately to, you know, push themselves forward as individuals. But in this... In, in this English way of working, and I can speak having experienced both, we've created something that is is truly satisfying because of the tapestry of it, because of the interweaving of characters and and because of our willingness and ability to support one another and the whole picture, the whole story. Yeah. And, and I can speak um, uh, from, from my very kind of, singular point of view of having experienced both America and England, that it would be a difficult thing to pull off in America in quite the same way. And, um, and, and I think that's what makes it special and it's, it's what I'm very, very proud of. Thank you. Anna? 
Um, I think um, I'm very proud of the fact that on the series, I, um, along with lots of other um, heads of departments, really set a, a, a high bar to reach to, to um, just push the production value for the show as, as far as we possibly could. And then to come onto the film and feel like I wanted to elevate um, even further and set the bar um, further for myself and for my team, um, I feel very proud that I think that we've achieved that. You certainly did. <laughs> Well, Liz, um, I will. Uh, my last question will be for you. Uh, this um, this film opens the Crawley family storybook once again, and yet it pivots it and sort of propels everybody into new places, new directions. Maybe retirement. We don't know. <laughs> but um, could we be looking towards any sequels? What do you think, guys? Well, it's interesting you say that. What's the one thing you kind of do when you retire? You travel. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we would certainly... What, what we've said all along was when people started saying, what about it? We thought, hang on, let's just get this one launched. <laughs> um, but, you know, we're, we're immensely proud and actually humbled by the fact that we are number one in the States. Um, it's, it's, <laughs> it's really... Um, I'm going to stop myself repeating what I've just said because it is, it's huge for us. Um, we're enormously uh, grateful and appreciative of the love that we feel in this country for what this project is. And I think all of us have said, if it does, if the, if the, if the audiences like it, we're up for another. There's your answer. Well, I'll just close by saying we may be two great nations separated by a common language, but we are united in our love for Downton Abbey. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you all. Thank for you. Thank, thank you. this terrific group of filmmakers. Thanks for listening to Academy Conversations Uncut. We hope you enjoyed this unique access to a members-only Q&A at the Academy. Be sure to like, share, and subscribe, and help us reach film lovers around the world. This podcast was produced by the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences.